Welcome to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Bob Bartlett. Um, he's the father of ECMO. And I'm very honored to have him here because you know, there's nobody in the world that knows so much about ECMO or ECLS as Dr. Bartlett. So welcome, Dr. Bartlett. Welcome to this podcast series. Thank you, Peter. And, um, you know, as I said, you know, we, I, I used already two terms in my introduction, which is ECMO and which is ECLS. And sometimes people are very adamant about, you know, what you should call it. Can you maybe explain a little bit what your preference is and what the differences are? Yes, uh, there are grammatical differences, but we use the words ECMO and ECLS interchangeably. They both refer to uh, extracorporeal circulation for heart or lung failure, uh, either uh, in veno-arterial or veno-venous mode, but uh, we, we've come to think of the terms to be the same. So ECMO and ECLS, uh, for this conversation, we should consider it the same thing. Extracorporeal circulation uh, for cardiac or pulmonary support. Right. So, so but then, it's, it's, I, if I'm correct, it's about how long ago, 50 years ago, that you started with the first kind of ECMO? Is that correct? This uh, started in the 60s, however many years ago that is. It was right, shortly right. after the advent of extracorporeal circulation for heart surgery, cardiopulmonary bypass. The first case was done by Gibbon in 1953. So by the early 60s, when I was in fact a resident in surgery, uh, we were the world was a few years into cardiac surgery using the heart-lung machine. And almost all those cases were children because you could only use the heart-lung machine for about an hour or more. And after that, the device itself became a, a lethal instrument. So uh, the early cardiac operations were atrial septal defects and secundum defects and things like that. Uh, once it became possible to operate on the heart, then of course, repairing a tetralogy or uh, repairing transposition of the vessels, things like that became possible, uh, but they required being on bypass for usually more than an hour. And if you use the heart-lung machine for more than two hours, uh, it was essentially lethal, so that uh, it would. We all had the idea, wouldn't it be great if you could put a patient on a cardiopulmonary bypass for a day or two? But uh, you you couldn't do it because of the and because of the lung part of the heart lung machine, and the uh, part of that machine that caused multiple organ failure was the lung itself, which was just simply. Explos exposing raw blood to oxygen and one way or another passed, passed oxygen through the blood and it was uh, very effective, but very damaging at the same time. So uh, in the early 60s, a material called dimethyl polysiloxane or silicone rubber was discovered uh, which you could make into membrane sheets and the unique properties of that material was that it transferred 
respiratory gases, oxygen and CO2 and water vapor, so that uh, it became possible to build a membrane type of artificial lung. Uh, and that's, that's when the research on this idea started. There were several labs and several companies that were working on that idea. Uh, as again, I was a resident, but working uh, at the Brigham and Children's Hospital in Boston with an engineer named Phil Drinker, we built membrane oxygenators and then used that homemade device to keep uh, extracorporeal circulation for quite a long time. And in fact, found that we could do it for a long time. We reported uh, extracorporeal circulation in animals for four days in about 1967 or eight. And other labs are working on the same thing, notably Don Hill from San Francisco and Ted Colabo, who was at the NIH. And um, with, with that, we learned you could keep an animal on for a long time. And then the first human cases were done in 1971, 72, 75. So it grew uh, from that time. Wow. So, so Martin, you, you mentioned the time that, you, that Gibbon invented the heart-lung machine. Do you still remember those patients that were operated with just with hypothermia that uh, in a cold bath with ice on it? In it? Uh, yes. There, uh, when, when I was a resident, starting in 63, uh, deep hypothermia as the only way to preserve the heart had been done in a few centers. Uh, in in the Boston Children's where Dr. Gross was and who I trained with, uh, we used deep hypothermia if we needed to turn off the circulation, for example, to close a pot shunt, for something like that, so that we would be on bypass, cool down to very cold level, turn off the pump for 10 or 15 minutes and turn it back on again. Yeah. That must have been a revolution, you know, the, the heart-lung machine in the 60s. Uh, well, yes, of course. And and uh, there were fairly few places around the world that were actively using cardiopulmonary bypass and operating on children primarily with congenital heart defects. Right. So just of my own interest, uh, do you then still remember Professor Brom from Leiden in, in the Netherlands? I remember his name. I did not know him personally. Right. Yeah. Because I also hear the stories. And that's where I trained, you know, where he was working also on, on uh, let's say, extracorporeal circulation for for the Netherlands uh, to use to use it there. Right. So, so, yeah. So when you uh, when when you started with the whole program, did you immediately get supporters of it or were there people skeptical? Well, everyone was terribly skeptical, of course, not not so much for cardiac surgery, but for uh, using our modified heart-lung machines uh, to keep a patient alive for, with severe respiratory failure or severe cardiac failure for a few days uh, with the hope that the heart or lungs would recover during a short period of time, which uh, generally was true, especially for heart failure, uh, because... Uh, patients who were operated on with the conventional heart-lung machine uh, would then get into 
for what we would now call myocardial stun. Uh, but if you could keep those patients alive for just one more day, they'd be fine. Right. It's, it's always with um, people that invent something that afterwards and people say, yes, of course, you know, th this will work. I also told you that it would work. Well, that's that, uh, of course, once, once it worked once, then, uh, you know, it'll work over and over again. But uh, people are skeptical until they uh, see it working with their own eyes. Yeah. So, so probably there were a couple of key milestones um, that you say, hey, these are things that I can clearly identify that helped you know, this type of therapy grow. What were those, the key milestones? Well, they were all in the 70s. And the first successful case was a 20-year-old man with what we would now call ARDS, didn't have, well, we did have that name at that time, following trauma. So a man who had a ruptured aorta, a lot of fractures and profound respiratory failure after his operations for trauma. And Don Hill, who had been uh, working on that idea, uh, had tried a few cases without success. Actually, uh, my partner, Al Gazdanik, and I got involved with that case, but we were not ready to do a clinical case. So we called Don. He came to Santa Barbara, put the patient on. He was on for about two days and and uh, recovered quite well. That, that was the so-called Bramson oxygenator. Maury Bramson was the engineer who built it. It took hours to assemble, but it worked. So that was the first successful case. Uh, the next year, uh, we had a child that we had done a mustard operation for transposition and was in cardiac failure immediately post-op, put him on our machine for a couple of days and he ultimately recovered and survived. And then uh, we had the first neonatal case in 1975 uh, at a time when severe respiratory failure in newborn infants had an 80% mortality and that little girl recovered and survived, followed by another one and another one. So uh, when other centers tried to duplicate that experience uh, in adult patients with respiratory failure, it didn't work for many reasons. And uh, But nonetheless, that idea was given up except for a few laboratories like ours and Luciano Gattinoni in Italy. But um, but it worked very well for newborns. So we developed it in that group of patients and that uh, rapidly became 80 plus percent survival in those babies. Again, most people didn't believe it, but a few came to learn how to do it, learned how to do it, reproduced those results. So for the next uh, 10 or 20 years, the growth of the technology was mostly in newborn respiratory failure and in cardiac failure in children. Right. And so you mentioned that, you know, it worked in, in children and in the pediatric population, but it didn't work in the adult population. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Why didn't it work in the adult population? Well, in fact, it worked quite well in the adult population if you knew how to do it. But Luciano and I were the only people in, the, in that category. 
from the research point of view, after Don Hill's case, uh, the diagnosis of ARDS was a new phenomenon. That now that we had patients in ICUs and uh, surviving for a couple of days, if they had severe respiratory failure, what was called ARDS, and they were failing on the ventilator, after Don's case, everyone said, this is great. This is going to be the solution to adult respiratory failure. So uh, a study was impaneled starting in about 1974 to be a prospective randomized trial of ECMO or no ECMO for uh, ARDS in adult patients. That study was terribly designed. It's the prototype of how not to study a new technology. Almost all the patients bled to death. Out of the nine centers, there were only three that ever had any experience with ECMO. There was no standardization of anything. So it was a terrible device study. And I can say that because I helped to design the study. It was really <laughs> badly done. So we now know that if you're going to study a brand new artificial liver, let's say, yeah. you, you need to do a whole lot of preparation ahead of time. You have to get people who are expert at using whatever device you're going to use. You need to standardize everything in the protocols before starting into it. So we learned all that from that uh, terribly designed adult ECMO study from the mid-70s. Uh, it was finally published in about 79. Warren Zapol was the lead author. And I've gone back to read that study from time to time. We were all authors on it, uh, but we, at the time it was published, we of course didn't say, this is not a good way to, to study a new device. <laughs> Since then, looking back on it, uh, we, we realize it's a, it's a very good description of how not to study a new device. Right, Nonetheless, right. That, that's the reason why we say it didn't work in adults. It did not work. 10% of patients survived in that trial. Uh, but uh, Luciano and I and a few other people kept working on adults. And in fact, it works very well, not nearly as well as newborn infants, because the reason it was so successful in the newborns was these are babies with normal healthy lungs by and large and so all they they have pulmonary vasospasm pulmonary hypertension of the newborn whether the cause is meconium aspiration or sepsis or anything else so uh if if they just live long enough that the pulmonary vasospasm relaxes which takes two or three days then they're perfectly healthy with nice healthy lung an exception is diaphragmatic hernia where the, where the lungs are not normal, but at least one lung is healthy enough to support the baby. So, so that's why it was so successful in the newborn. Uh, and eventually, as you know, once we got doing adults 30 years later, the typical survival rate is about 60 to 70% in places where there are people who know how to do it. Yeah. Well, at the same time, you know, the pediatric population can also be challenging and, and because you need smaller cannulas, you need the smaller devices and smaller. Was that an issue? Uh, I, would, I would say the opposite. The challenge for adults, gee, we needed bigger cannulas and bigger oh devices. So, so <laughs> right. Standard technology in the newborn, all developed in the laboratory, of course. And we kept but, doing laboratory studies to do it. 
And and you mentioned a couple of times, you know, that you worked very closely with engineers. Um, was that just pure luck that you were in an environment where there were engineers, or did you did you recruit those people? Uh, a bit of both. Um, in in my case, uh, I was at the Children's and the Brigham Hospital in Boston, and our chief, Francis Moore, who's a legendary surgeon. Uh, said, you know, there ought to be a role for engineers in hospitals. So he went to MIT next door, recruited someone. They sent him a young guy named Philip Drinker. And uh, so Phil worked on a whole variety of problems, uh, built blood gas machines and things like that, uh, hospital beds and so on. But uh, uh, turned out to be perfect for the project we were working on. And the same was true elsewhere, but the the person who was most responsible for the actual devices, particularly membrane oxygenators that we came to use for the next 30 years was a guy named Ted Colobo. He uh, was a physician, but did not practice. He was at the NIH. He, he worked in the device development lab, which developed a lot of the early dialyzers and pumps and got interested in membrane type of lungs as well. Yeah. And we, of course, have an example of Walter Lilehai that worked together with Earl Bakken. Yes. Um, yes and right. that's that's where Metronic started. Yeah. Good example. So engineers working with physicians. Yes, that's right. And and Gibbon uh, worked with engineers from IBM, wasn't it? He, he, he did. And uh, he did all of his research uh, on his own in the laboratory at Jefferson University, uh, but when he when he had it going and going quite well, uh, the, the group from IBM got involved to, to uh, make more than one device. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at Medtronic.com slash Cardiac Exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.